0: Well good morning to you. Great to be in Bristol. Um, It's a long journey from Shropshire, you know it's like the Hobbit territory out there in the sticks and it was snowing on the way. There were one or two sticky hills to get up on the journey down this morning but it's uh, great to be in Bristol. Great to be back in Bristol. I spent a year here in 1981-1982 in the Department of Education of the University doing teacher training. And uh, teacher training is a great way to see how diverse a city is because you're sent for teaching practice into schools of every single type. So I remember vividly visiting the Fishpond Secondary School, uh, Brislington, now an academy, a school which used to be called Hartcliffe in the southern area. I'm not sure what it's called now. I couldn't find it when I Googled it socially needy area, just south of the Ashton Down kind of area. And I did my other teaching practice at Bristol Grammar School. Okay. Now the contrasts were, shall we say, striking. One of many experiences in life I've had through God's grace where I've realized that this world is a very divided world. And whichever country you go to, you find that division, and it cuts in different ways in different places. When I left school, I was in a privileged private school where I found Christ. I went straight to South Africa and worked as a volunteer in the middle of the apartheid years in the late 1970s, witnessed some of the most extreme social division, violence, and had some extraordinary experiences and it made me ask myself the question what kind of Christian faith do I believe in? Is it a personal salvation justification by faith uh, alone? Is it about finding a good church living a godly life keeping your nose clean um, having a good family life paying your tithe and heading towards heaven? And I realized in those formative years of my life There's a dimension to the gospel that hasn't been taught to me by some of my early teachers. I only encountered evangelical Christianity in my mid-teens. And I realized there are big, big challenges. How do we make Christ relevant, powerful, transformative for every single person in our nation? And this was a great passion for me. And what fed into this were visits... uh, to Romania just after communism, working in eastern Ukraine, which I've done for 20 years. I'm working in the area which is now uh, under the control of Russian separatists, supporting semi-underground churches, and many other experiences that I've had. So when I became a pastor up there in Shropshire, and I was leading that church for 20 years, I've handed over to one of my colleagues three years ago. I'm part-time on the staff now. I asked myself the question, how is this gospel relevant to the people in our community. And to cut a very long story short, it led us into buying a significant uh, building and turning it into a community center. It now has, it's like got three buildings on the same site. We have a very large community projects building and we run the food bank and lots of other resources for the whole town. But it also led me through God's prophetic word to me one day during a time of prayer and fasting to plant a church in the poorest part of town. And people said to me, well, why bother planting another church in a town of only about eighty, ninety thousand 90,000 people? Why not just aggregate people together? But I felt the Lord had spoken to me very clearly. Now, you plant a church in that area. And so we did. It had its ups and downs. But as we speak this morning, that church has a vibrant congregation in the poorer part of town, has started some social enterprises to help some of the kids who've dropped out of school, has seen people come to Christ in that area who probably wouldn't come to our main church. And we planted another church in the north of town. And between those three churches, another church was planted in a town called Telford. And so as we gather this morning, that little network uh, that came out of that ministry uh, represents about 450 or 500 people gathered worshiping the Lord. On my journey with my church, I asked myself the question, where are the needs? And I very quickly identified debt as an overwhelming challenge to our nation. And so we started operating in the area of food banks. Long before the Trussell Trust had been founded, we had a food bank. And we started with money advice. And then we developed life skills and all sorts of things to help people, realizing that many people in our nation are submerging into debt. And we started working with the elderly. And we've had four different phases of working with elderly and needy uh, elderly um, uh, in our town over those 20 years. And then we branched out into all sorts of other areas and saw people finding Christ, finding help, and seeing the church as relevant. And so now in our town, if you ask the people in the council or the charity sector, the third sector, or in the housing associations, almost everybody they know, about what we do we are engaged with them we are in dialogue at the top level with the council we have a representative of our church just starting as probably the only member of the charity sector engaged with the top council staff on a project they're just starting now which is how do we prevent levels of poverty increasing in our area and we were chosen as the spokesperson uh, the spokesperson for the community activists that's where the body of christ should be And we just carried on in Shropshire. I mean, Shropshire's just, as I said, it's like the Shire. It's like the Hobbits just carrying on (laughs) quietly until Gandalf suddenly rolls up. And uh, that was my life. Until in 2011, a gentleman called David Stroud, who used to head New Frontiers, UK, was a good friend. He said, I'd like you to help our churches across the nation with engaging with social action and um, to cut a long story short this led to the development of a project which is now called Jubilee Plus and it's a team, a national team we started writing books, conferences, training events I've got a couple of books here uh, that we've, we've authored The Myth of the Undeserving Poor and A Church for the Poor which you can access at the end of this meeting and I've got a booklet here about our work I'm not here to advertise our work jubilee-plus.org if you want to go on the web That's just the introduction. I just need to get that out of the way so you know who I am. But this this mission got so much into my heart. And I'm I'm traveling right across the country. And in the last few weeks, by the way, I've been in inner city Liverpool. I've been downtown Stoke. I've been in leafy Winchester. And shortly I'm going to Edinburgh. And so uh, there are so many places I go to. And I see wonderful groups of Christians and churches who know, like they know in their heart of hearts, that there are more dimensions of the gospel that they want to live out in their communities without abandoning anything else that they've always lived and stood for. And our journey as a as a team is to help people to find a way of doing that really effectively. Let me just introduce you to my team. I think they're just going to appear on the screen just very briefly. Uh, one of them sitting here, Pete and Sue, of course, are in City Church in the other branch. Um, Andy at the back with a black shirt. He's from Durham. He's an economist and he's helping us with our research. Natalie at the front. Natalie Williams is a journalist and a media specialist, co-author for me, and then our administrator at the front. And then Steve over um, to your right is from Bournemouth and he's helping us developing a particular project with the elderly currently most of their time is given voluntarily. We travel the country and we serve churches like City Church here in Bristol. Let's turn to the scriptures. Our time is short and I want to use every minute to the very best uh, to serve you. I want you to turn, please, with me to Luke chapter 4, to a familiar text. But I want to analyze it in a perhaps a slightly unfamiliar way and just to help you um, get into Um, a key part of the narrative of Jesus' life. Luke 4, and I'm going to read, in fact, from verse 14, um, but we've put up on the screen um, the key section that we're just going to look at in a moment. This is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He established his base at Capernaum, a little fishing village where Peter lived with his family, um, rather than Nazareth, his hometown. And this is his famous homecoming, having been down to the Jordan, uh, been baptized, started his ministry, went back to Nazareth, Um, to the people who knew him as Joseph's son, the carpenter. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, verse 14, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on them. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You'll be familiar with this text. We call it the Nazareth Manifesto. This is the place in which Jesus defines his mission more explicitly and definitively than at any other place. This is at the very beginning and he says what is going to happen. He says what's beginning to happen through his ministry. And if you look at the text from Isaiah, I want to give to you the five different components that we can see in here. They're all sitting in the text. They may not be explicitly obvious to us, but as we think about them, they're all there. Number one, to proclaim good news to the poor. This is obviously a a reference to. To the direct proclamation of the gospel with a particular focus on the, on those in need, incidentally. To proclaim, so the evangelistic direct communication of the word of God is always at the forefront of the ministry of the church. Would you agree with that? Nothing can ever take away from that. And the consequence of that, number two, is that he, uh, that he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, most Scholars would suggest to us interpreters that the most likely meaning of this, both in Isaiah's original context and here in Jesus, is the freedom from sin, the power of sin. There's not just a proclamation of general comfort, it's a proclamation that identifies the problem of sin. And the power of the cross and the redemptive power of the cross. This is absolutely intrinsic to our Christianity. It's not for me to emphasize it today any further than this. Because this is not what you've asked me to talk about. But I'm just saying this is the foundation. He sent me. uh, And recovery of sight for the blind. This is a poetic statement of the miraculous events, the healing of the blind was identified by the Jews as a messianic sign, as a matter of interest and as a key miracle. And so I want to constantly lift my mind and your mind and heart towards the miraculous power of God to do astonishing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit and never let that reality diminish even if we go through ups and downs in the process of getting there. Would you agree with me? He still wants to do direct Miracles. To set the oppressed free. The oppression that Jesus often spoke of. Was the oppression of demonic activity. And so we don't want to be mealy mouthed about this. And we don't want to be ambiguous about this. There is a dimension of oppression in people's lives. That is brought about by the activity of the enemy. And so Christ comes to break that oppression, however small or large it may be. Whatever its manifestation, that's part of our proclamation. We don't want to be ambiguous about that, do we? There's four things. Now that's four messages we could spend. But I'm not here to talk about any of those four things. Although they're absolutely Critical. I'm here to unpack the final phrase which most people hardly notice and ascribe a kind of poetic uh, feel to to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to try and work out what this could possibly have meant to the original congregation of the Nazareth Man- uh, Synagogue. And what it might have meant in the pen of Isaiah. As he wrote this prophecy 700 years earlier. We have to go back to the Old Testament. What was the expression? What would that expression mean to a Jew versed in their scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures. The answer is very clear. There was a year in the law of Moses. Marked out. As utterly unique in the cycle of Jewish life. Known as the year of Jubilee described to us in Leviticus chapter 25. And most interpreters if they are connecting this passage accurately and closely with the Old Testament will you'll find to come to the conclusion that, in fact, Jesus is making an inference, a reference to the year of the Lord's favor being the year of Jubilee. But what was the significance of the year of Jubilee? The significance of the year of Jubilee was that indebtedness was overturned and particularly bonded labor. You know, I'd had a hard time on my farm. I couldn't ne- manage it anymore, so I'd had to hand over... I'd had to let someone else take over the farm temporarily, and I had to become their laborer, so I became a kind of slave or what we might call a bonded laborer for a certain period. And for the poorer people, everyone had some land because land was distributed to the whole nation. They'd lost control of their land. They'd lost access to their land. And in the year of Jubilee, all of a sudden, quite amazingly those people who'd leased the land had to give it back. Those people who'd taken people into bonded labor had to release them. Those people who'd incurred debt were unilaterally uh, given a write-off, a write down So the year of the Lord's favor had a remarkable social and economic flavor to it. And it basically meant that in, in, in Judaism, if they followed the law of Moses, which they didn't always, but if they followed the law of Moses, no one would ever get too rich. And no one would ever get too poor. Because the person who accumulated had to deaccumulate. They had to give back unilaterally. And the personal family who'd fallen on hard times through their own faults or through natural disaster or some unexpected circumstance were given an amazing hand up. A redemptive moment. And so the levers of state, so to speak, were used to provide an equalization of the inequality. Not in a legalistic or a communistic or prescriptive sense, but in a generic economic sense. And Jesus predicted that in his kingdom of the new covenant, not based on the law of Moses, but adopting the same dimensions of spiritual transformation in a new context, something similar would happen. where an opportunity would be provided for those who had too much to give it away and share it through the church and the kingdom. And an opportunity would be provided for those who had very little to be empowered by enough economic resource to live viably in their society. That's the... Staggering prediction of the Nazareth Manifesto in its fifth dimension. The tantalizing reality is Jesus doesn't spell out how it's going to happen. Because we're not living in a law-based religion. And the best way to work it out is to see what happened in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. I want to now compress the material that I teach very extensively, and if you're interested in a more developed version of it, you can go on our website, jubilee-plus.org, and look for our conference downloads, and you can find seminars on the biblical basis for our social justice view, and you can get the detailed version. Can I just give you some headlines? We've got some coming up on the screen now. There are six things I notice in the New Testament. I'll just give you them as headlines. We don't have time to go into them. Three things in the church and three things in the wider world, all of which I think are relevant for us as the Spirit leads us in every single context that we're building church. In the, in the church community, we find that in the local church, where there's poverty and need, there is always help. A brilliant example being the Jerusalem church. Possession shared, proto-deacons appointed, Organise support for the widows who are being overlooked in the food bank of the Jerusalem church. <coughs> Secondly, Paul points out in 1 Timothy 5 that the church empowers families to help one another and gives responsibility to those in families who have opportunities and resources to share with poorer members of their family. And thirdly, we see that richer churches help poorer churches in their culture or In another culture. But then what about the wider community? Let's move on to our next slide. There are three. Remarkable. Developments in the New Testament. That help us show that the church is going to bring the year of the Lord's favor to the wider community. Not just its own members. Number one. The parable of the Good Samaritan does something very radical. To the Jew, the command to love your neighbor as yourself was interpreted within the confines of Judaism. I love my fellow Jew, the guy who lives in the house next door to me, who's really annoying and he keeps his music on late at night and and his children are always shouting on the street. You know, I've got to love him. Don't argue, don't fight. Okay, so that was the Jewish mentality. But when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he broke the paradigm. He was breaking the racial paradigm. He was breaking the social paradigm and saying, basically, in the kingdom of God now, your neighbor is he or she who has need, who is within your reach to help. That's a radical revolution. And secondly, we see in the New Testament through John the Baptist and James 5, the first few verses. Have a look at James one, ch- 5, cha- uh, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 when you have a moment and you'll get a shock uh, if you haven't read it recently. A prophetic voice for the poor. The church has a mandate to speak. My organization, Jubilee Plus, which is Supported by all the new frontier spheres, including your own, um, your commission. Uh, I was in touch with Guy Miller this week. Uh, We represent the needs of people, vulnerable people in our nation, right to the top. A member of my team recently had a one-to-one meeting with a senior member of the government to talk about universal credit rollout. behind closed doors, a confidential meeting. And we're called to be salt and light in our society. Sometimes it's the workplace, sometimes it's business that is the key thing which we can contribute. Somebody came to one of our conferences many years ago um, and he was a teacher and he suddenly had the idea through one of the conferences that he would start a business, a gardening business, and employ people coming out of prison, men coming out of prison this is his primary uh, workforce. He's been doing that for many years now, and it's a business that's grown to such significance that he did a radio interview recently on his regional BBC radio because they picked up the story. He's made a difference to dozens if not hundreds of people through being salt and light. Now I want to just come a little bit more personal as we conclude. I want to put some things up on here um, that I have discovered over the years that have really helped us on the journey. And can I say to start with, however a well-resourced church you are, however small church you are, whether you have a building or not, and I speak in many different contexts, I always believe That with social action, start where you are, do what you can. And integrate it into the DNA of the church. It's not an add-on for a few enthusiasts. It's one of the five dimensions of the Nazareth Manifesto, to bring the year of the Lord's favor, even if it's only to two or three neighbors, a few elderly people, some people in a particular need, that you're able to identify. God will always multiply those things. But what I've learned talking to thousands of people over the years, the last five years, in different contexts, is that a lot of this is about the heart. It's not just about theology. It's about our hearts. And that's what I've had to learn on the journey. And here are six things that I feel are about our heart attitude. Number one, simplicity. Seeking to even reconsider our lifestyle choices in the light of the urgent needs that are around us is a good discipline. My wife and I have done that on several occasions. We've simplified our lives to make more resources available. Second thing is generosity. Very often the generosity of the church is geared towards the ministries of the church, the mission of the church directly, and that is extremely important. But there is a New Testament dimension of generosity, which is being generous directly to those who are poor. A couple I know discussed this with me once privately, and they said we're, we're so touched by this theme in the New Testament that in our finances we have a separate budget to give to a crisis budget we save a little bit every month and we, when we see a crisis somebody in need we've already got a budget to give them something the third issue for me has been the most important in my own life It's what I call proximity how close are we to human suffering well some of you will be very close to it just by the nature of your work your family or your life But it is possible in our culture to be insulated from things that are happening even very close to where we live. I remember a very powerful experience I had at my first university where I, I saw on the street a man who always positioned himself on the street. He was begging. Begging the students is always a good trade, they're more generous than the rest of the population. And I noticed him, and I used to occasionally give him something, and I used to occasionally speak to him. And gradually we started talking, and gradually I got to know his name. His name was Brian. I told him my name, and we talked briefly. Then one day something very striking and very surprising happened, because he'd been homeless. And Brian saw me coming along the street again, a student aged about 19, 20 He in his 50s, very decrepit, very disheveled. A very tragic personal history. No close family at hand. And he said to me, Martin, would you come to my place? The council had just housed him in a basement, tiny little flat. And I realized when he spoke to me that this was the first person And the only person he had invited to his place. So I said, yeah, I'll come. We entered into the downstairs basement. He smoked heavily. He didn't open the windows. So I thought, well, I'll just take one deep breath and see if it lasts for 20 minutes. (laughs) But it didn't work. And we sat and we drank tea and we spoke. And we did this again and again and we became real friends through proximity. I needed to come into his world and the street wasn't really his world. It was the negotiating point of different worlds. So it came for me to leave the university and I went to tell him I was leaving. I prayed for him, witnessed to him. And as I told him, it was one of the saddest moments of my life. He cried, and I cried, because I was losing a friend. I had to go and live elsewhere. Proximity was changing me. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is the proximity he had to people. You follow that through the Gospels as a theme. The sheer closeness to the rich, to the Pharisees, in their home with meals, to the leper. The leper who came before Jesus broke into the town. He wasn't even allowed in the town. It's a very striking story. The first leprosy miracle recorded in the Gospels is absolutely astonishing. He broke into the town and he came and he, he, he flung himself before Jesus on the floor. And, he's, and, and if, if you're willing heal me and jesus word was i'm willing and he reached out to him. the untouchable and i've over the years i've realized you know theology shapes our thinking and our framework and i'm i'm a bible teacher i love love teaching the scriptures i believe new frontiers movement widely needs to be an utterly biblical movement But I know we don't go on the journey of the year of the Lord's favor unless also our hearts follow our theology. So proximity is important. Community, doing things in community, not just a one-man band. Strategy, we need a plan. Churches can create plans. And we also need expectancy. (coughs) that God will do miracles because working with people in need can be a tough ride sometimes. But there are many gems and many wonderful stories. And I've seen many of them in my own church and other churches. People whose lives have been changed. Who've come literally from the gutter. I think of a member of my church who was found homeless on the street begging in London by a Christian lady who witnessed him. He was an addict. He ended up in an addiction recovery. Christian center near our church. Came to our church. Found Christ. He's now a well established member of the church. With his own family. But he was in the gutter. Brothers and sisters. I invite you to take another step on this journey as a church. And I can make this invitation with confidence because Andy Cottingham and I spoke on the phone and he he said, say what you like. (laughs) I don't know Andy that well, but I guess. And so I'm saying to you, identify prophetically, practically, ways in which this church and this branch of this church particularly can... Bring the year of the Lord's favour. And guess what will happen? It won't just be blessing individuals, (coughs) bringing some to Christ maybe. But what I find and I believe is that as we seek this part of God's heart, He also blesses other dimensions of the church that are unrelated to that particular ministry. And we invoke the very pleasure of God by drawing closer to his heart. Now, sadly, I have to go in a few minutes for reasons that you know better than I do, but I've been given a schedule and I have to obey. There's some other place I have to go and speak, some branch of this church, I don't know. So if I don't stay, it's not because I don't want to stay, because actually I do want to stay. Talk to you, pray for you, encourage you. And thank you for having me. But I do want us to respond. And then I'll hand back to Paul at a suitable moment. So let's stand together, shall we? <coughs> and I do want to be very specific. And I want to say, if in a, in a specific way you feel there's a call in your life, to be something different, to do something different to what you're doing now, you just know it, then I'm going to invite you in just a minute, a few seconds time, just to come and stand here at the front. I'll pray over anyone who might stand here. I won't be able to talk to you individually, but others can do that. And I've done this on different occasions and I've had incredible testimonies of things that have just come to birth through that prophetic moment. So please come. If you just feel God has touched you in a particular way, And you want to just make yourself available to me, not committing to any particular project. Just give you a moment if anyone feels that's me. All you're doing is indicating an availability to the Holy Spirit. For the rest of our congregation, let's stay really focused. You know these folks, of course. Why don't you, if you're a believer here today and you're in the main congregation, just raise your hand towards the front. Just as a sign of affirmation and prayer of blessing. Because I think the real miracles are going to happen. People are going to start out in things. There's going to be ministries launched. There's going to be neighborhood things happening. There's going to be things at work that are going to change. So, Father, we come to you now. We thank you for these few moments we've shared together. And, Lord, I pray for every one of these folk who are here at the front this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, come upon them, lead them. Pray for prophetic words, prophetic dreams. I pray for ideas rooted in the past. I pray that you'll harvest the benefit of personal experience, some bitter experiences that can be turned to good. Father, I pray for that inner calling that's been rumbling away for a long time, that's been unarticulated. I pray for it to be articulated and developed. Father, in the name of Jesus, will you come and do some new things here in City Church that we may be more truly than ever before a church for the poor in the name of Jesus. And all the people said, Amen. Thank you so much. I'm going to hand back to Paul now and maybe those people to return to their seats.